Well, if you've been around for the last month or so, you'll know that we're currently working our way through the book of Philippians together. And we're looking at it with a view of discovering how to find joy in a whole range of different life experiences. Things like loneliness, suffering, humility, temptation, conflict, exhaustion, anxiety and poverty. But the subject we're going to be homing in on this time round is how to find joy in death. Now, there's only a number of different angles we could take on this, but what I want to primarily focus on is how to get to the end of your life and be able to look back with joy and not regret. And to do this, I want to take you to a verse that's been described by many people as the Apostle Paul's mission statement, his reason for living. But before we get there, I just want to probe a little bit and help you work out your chief mission in life. I want to help you think about your main reason for living. So here's how we're going to do it. We're going to come at it a couple of different ways. First of all, let's say half a dozen people who know you really well. Six people, maybe your closest friends, your closest family. They're going to have a meeting this afternoon. They're going to meet somewhere top secret and they're going to talk primarily about you. And I'm going to be present as well. And I'm going to be there feeding them some words and phrases that may or may not describe what's really important to you. What matters most in your life. Just to add, you're not in the room. So these people, these friends, these family members who know you really well, they can say what they really think without any fear of upsetting you. Let me give you a few examples. Six people who know you, they're in the room. I wander in and I say, possessions and material stuff. But the people who know you best say, that's really important to you or of little importance. Or if I was to say, Career advancement. Is that like a low value in the life of this person we're discussing? Is it a medium value or is it way up there near the top? Does this person essentially live to get ahead in their career? What what do you think they'd say? What about family? Would they say, well, their whole life is centred on their family. It's like family is crucially important to them. Or would they say, well, I know for a fact they'd walk over anyone in their family just to get where they're going. How about freedom or autonomy? I know a lot of people for whom that's the highest value in their life. That's what they're really shooting for. Their mission statement could read, to be free, to be in charge, to be answerable to no one. Would your friends say that about you? And where do you think God would feature? These six people are talking about you. They say, well, their relationship with God is by far the most important thing in their life. They, they talk about him all the time. It's like they're so excited about him. They're, they're always trying to point other people to him. But they say, God, is that important to you? How about this one? Sport. It's like their mood depends on how their team's doing. I just don't think they could live without football. I don't think they could live without rugby or golf or going to the gym. And what, if anything, would they say about church? The six people who know you really well say, well, they're so committed to their local church. I just don't get it myself. I don't understand. It's like they're there every week, every Sunday. They're there early, setting up, serving in some way. They're so generous towards the church. It's like it plays a major part in their lives. Would it be news to your friends that church plays any part in your life? And how do your friends rate the importance of friendships to you? Would they think that they themselves are a priority in your life or just pretty dispensable to you? You see, oftentimes we see ourselves most clearly when we think about how other people see us. So what are those closest to you 
assume is of most importance to you? Now, maybe that approach doesn't really work for you because you just haven't a clue how other people view you. So let's try and explore it another way. I just want you to answer these three quick questions. Answer them as honestly as you can. Question number one. Where does your mind focus when it's free to wander? In other words, what do you catch yourself daydreaming about most often? Even now, since I started speaking, where has your mind gone? Where has it drifted? That's a pretty good indicator of what's really important to you. Question number two. Where do you love to invest your free time? I don't know, maybe you get an unexpected day off. What would you like to do with it? What activity? What engagement? Because what you pursue or get involved in with your time, that says a tremendous amount about what you value most. Question number three. What do you joyfully spend your spare money on? I know spare money maybe uh, doesn't exist in your world, but imagine you have spare money. What do you joyfully spend it on? What do you give it to? What do you love to support? Who do you spend it on? I suggest that just honestly answering those three very simple questions will help you gain some tremendous insights into your own value system. Now, whenever I'm talking to people who are still wrestling with this, still struggling to work out what they're really living for, I'll say to them half-jokingly, OK, just, just give me the phone number of three, four, five, six people who know you really well and give me your diary and just pass me your latest credit card or bank statements and give me 24 hours just to look over all that stuff and have those conversations and I reckon I'll be able to tell you pretty accurately what's most important to you because you can say it's saving the planet or advancing the kingdom of God but your credit card statement, your bank statement, your diary, those friends who know you really well, that information ultimately will nail you. It never lies. So what's the current truth about you? Not what do you want it to be, not what you think it should be. What's the reality? Because I think the way the devil works his tricks is he attempts to keep most people from acknowledging the truth about what it is they really are living for. You see, if we face the blunt truth about what it is we are living for, some of us would step back in horror. We would be shocked. In fact, if we were to see it in all its unadulterated truth, we'd probably want to do something about it. I guess most of us would want to change it in some way. So I think the devil's perfectly content to let us all be kind of fuzzy and vague about our mission in life. So let's try and be real about this. Face the truth. Don't try and duck the issue here. If you're willing to be honest, perhaps some of you would have to admit, my friends would say about me, well, it is career advancement, or it is money, or it is recreation. It's just my leisure time. Some of you have to face up to the fact that essentially that's what you're living for. For others, maybe possessions or good times. Maybe family is mixed in there somewhere. For others, it's just comfort, having an easy life, no responsibility, no commitment, no pressure. I've got to ask you, Are you satisfied with that? Are you happy with that? Is that mission worthy of the the allegiance of your one and only life? When you get to your last day, you reflect on your life. Are you going to look back and say, yeah, that's just how I wanted to live my life? Is that going to result in you finding joy in death? Well, on the off chance that maybe some of us here today could do with ever so slightly tweaking, revising what we're living for. 
I want to draw your attention to one of the most famous verses in Paul's writings. In fact, one of my favourite verses in all of Paul's writings. It's found in Philippians 1 verse 21. If you like, Paul says, here's what I'm living for. Here's my purpose. Here's my chief mission. Here's what it's all about for me. For to me, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's quite some statement for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you're looking for a personal mission statement, if you're looking for a reason for living, I don't think you'll find much better than that. So I want to spend the rest of our time today unpacking this statement. And I would love it if by the end of this talk, many of you chose to claim it for yourself. I'd love it if you chose this to be the statement that explains your life from this point on. But for many of you, it would require a huge jump in your thinking. So I want to ask God to come and help us hear this message with faith and to use it to change our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, even in the course of this meeting, how you've been speaking to us about your presence with us, how you never leave us, about the strength of your love for us. And I want to ask you right now that you will powerfully be present with each person listening to this message, speaking directly into their hearts, challenging, confronting, encouraging, helping the next phase of each of our lives be significantly more purposeful than the previous stage, the previous phase. God, we want our lives to count for something. We want our lives to carry a sense of significance Would you help us see what that significance, what that purpose, what that reason might be? Amen. Okay, two questions. First of all, how is dying gain? Secondly, what does to live is Christ actually mean? Question number one then, how is dying gain? Well, Paul explains himself later on in this passage in verse 23. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. That's what death does for a Christian. Basically, it takes us into even more intimacy with Christ. We depart from this life and suddenly we're with Christ. And that, Paul says, is gain. It's far better than living here. Now, that sounds great in theory, but is it really? Is it really better? Do you think it's better? Is it better than having loads of friends and being incredibly popular? Is it better than falling in love? Is it better than gaining professional success? Is it better than going on a huge shopping spree? Is it better than seeing your kids grow up? Is it better than retirement and spending time with the grandchildren? Is it better than sex? Is it better than representing your country in your chosen sport? Is it better than earning a six-figure salary? Is it? Paul would say, yes, a million times over. Yes, dying and being with Christ is significantly better. For those who believe in Jesus, for those who know him, those who've given their lives to follow him, death is merely the doorway to eternal life, which is going to be infinitely better than this life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German church leader, he certainly saw it this way. Just before he was hanged by the Nazis in 1945, he prayed this truly remarkable prayer. He said, oh God, this is the end. But for me, it's just the beginning. His confidence in what lay beyond death served him incredibly well. And he was staring death right in the face. And I suggest we 
today can have that exact same confidence. However bad death might be, there is better to come. Having said that, I don't want you to hear me wrong. We shouldn't glorify or romanticise death. I mean, Jesus certainly didn't. If you remember, he literally wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. For, for every story of people peacefully slipping into eternity, there are countless other stories of people riddled with pain, people wasting away mentally, physically, people leaving behind exhausted, confused, grief-stricken loved ones. Personally, I've seen death close up. Death is painful and it's an enemy. But for those who know Jesus, death is the final pain and the last enemy. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 25, for Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This destruction of death is foretold many centuries previously in ancient prophecy. Isaiah 25 verse 7 describes how God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And Paul echoes this incredible prophecy a little later on in 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 54. He says, when the perishable has been clothed with the unperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The truth is, unless Christ returns first, each one of us is destined to die. Everyone listening to this message, you will die. But death won't have the final say over our lives. Death may be hard, it may be painful, but it will end in victory for each one of us. If we know Jesus, death isn't to be feared. We can face it with absolute confidence that it's merely the beginning. It is just the doorway to a far better life. So let me ask you, do you crave God's perspective on death? Do you want to see death the way that God sees it? Maybe you're still struggling to get this. Well, ask yourself this, what's the worst that death can do to me? And then consider what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You understand? Not only will death not separate us from Christ, it will actually usher us into his glorious presence. We'll see him face to face. And all those frustrations of having to try and imagine what he's like and pray. And he seems so distant. And it can be such hard work at times. That'll be gone. We'll know. And then at the very end of time, at the final resurrection, Christ will demonstrate his victory by turning death right on its head. We raised up with brand new bodies that are no longer subject to pain and sickness and ageing and death and decay. And we'll live with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth with an eternity before us to explore all the wonders of everything he's prepared for us. I tell you, if you have this hope, 
you will not cling desperately to this life. If you genuinely believe this, you will long for the life to come. You'll embrace it with expectation and with hope. And you will, like Paul, view it as gain. I want to urge you, don't let a day go by without anticipating the new world that Christ is preparing for us. It's okay to dream about it. It's fine to let your imagination run wild because however great you imagine it being, it's going to be better by far. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life right now. But I just feel before we turn our attention to the second part of Paul's mission statement here, I want to say a quick word to anyone who's depressed, who maybe sees little point in keeping on living, who, who perhaps even struggles with suicidal thoughts. This is so important. I want you to hear this. Maybe this is the reason you're listening to this message right now. The fact that the life to come will be wonderful shouldn't tempt us to take shortcuts to get there. If you're depressed, you might think your life has no purpose. But you couldn't be more wrong. As long as God keeps you here on earth, this is exactly where he wants you. I mean, just look at verses 22 to 26 here. Paul knew something of this tension. I want to die. I want to go to glory. But I know I should keep living. He knew this tension. Should I die or should I stay alive? He says, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yeah, what shall I choose? I don't know. It's like I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. I mean, that's better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Don't you see, Paul felt this whole tension. He had such a grasp on what lay the other side of death that he desperately wanted to get there, but he chose to keep on living because God still had more for him to do. And it's the same for you. There are people who need you. Friends, family, this church. And for some of you, God's even going to use your experiences, however dark they may be, to help others. Might not seem like it. Might not seem like it to you at the moment, but God knows precisely what he's doing in your life. And through your suffering and through your difficulty and through the dark times of depression, somehow, some way, he is expanding your capacity for eternal joy. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not in any way wanting to belittle what you're going through. I know depression can be draining, can be really debilitating. I know it can feel like you're trapped and there's no way out. But you need to know you're not alone in this. Many godly people have experienced it. And I'll plead with you, if you're considering taking your own life, recognise this as a temptation from the devil himself. Jesus said, the devil is a liar and he's a murderer. And he tells lies because he wants to destroy you. Here's my advice. Don't listen to the liar. Please don't listen to the liar. Listen to Jesus. He's the one who tells the truth. And he's encouraging you. Won't you persevere to the end? Don't make a terrible ending to your life. Won't you finish your God-given course on this earth? And when it's done, not before, but when it's done, he'll take you to be with him in his own time, 
and his own way. And in the meantime, God has a purpose for you here on earth. Don't quit too soon. Don't give up before the end. And I promise you, it will all be worth it. I want to urge all of you to be making your daily decisions in light of your destiny. Ask yourself what you can do today, next week, next year, even decades from now to write the very best ending to this volume of your life story. And why don't you invest the time you've got left on this present earth to store up for yourself more treasures on the new earth. I mean, it makes sense. Think about it. We will have all of eternity to celebrate our victories in this life. The problem is we only have this brief window of opportunity now to win those victories. As C.T. Studd, the famous cricketer and missionary, once put it, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, I'm 39 years into my life, fast approaching 40, going through something of a personal crisis, where my life is passing by with tremendous speed. Maybe I'm halfway through my life. Maybe eternity just lies around the corner for me. However long I've got left, I want to use my life well. It's so short, so fragile, so final. We just get one chance to live our life and then we face God and we have to give an account for it all. And only what's done for Christ will last. All of which I think sounds remarkably similar to what Paul says in the first half of Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ. So secondly then, what does this actually mean? What does to live is Christ look like in practice? Here's what I think it means. I think it means living our lives now in preparation for eternity. I want to think about it. What exactly is eternal life? What will it be like? What do you think? What do you reckon? What, well, when you consider it, what does it look like in your mind's eye? I don't know. Is it just all about eternal self-esteem? Is it going to be a heaven full of mirrors so we can stand around for all eternity admiring ourselves forever? Is it an endless opportunity to sit back in comfortable sofas, watching TV, catching up with all those things we wished we'd managed to see in our previous existence? Is it just an endless opportunity to play sport or have unbridled sex? Or is it maybe just floating around on puffy white clouds playing harps? Somehow, I don't think so. Helpfully, Jesus spells it out for us in John 17 verse 3. This is what he says. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What's eternal life? It's to know God and his son, Jesus Christ. Let me spell it out for you. Nothing can satisfy you like knowing Jesus. No activity, no pastime, no relationship, no hero, no possession, no leadership position. No other experience comes anywhere close. Everything else is a shadow compared with him. Now it's fine to enjoy other stuff. I mean, God created it all for our pleasure in the first place, but everything that is good in life merely points to the absolute and total excellence of the one who gave it all to us in the first place. I'm telling you, the absolute highlight of eternity is going to be spending time with Jesus. And if that doesn't excite you, and some of you listening to this, it doesn't excite you. 
I say to you, you don't know him well enough. If the prospect of eternity full of Jesus doesn't overwhelm you and amaze you and grip you and motivate you, then I'd say there is still so much more of the wonder of Jesus for you to unearth and discover in this life. That's why I say that resolving that to live is Christ really means living our lives now in preparation for eternity. Because here's the point, the focus, the essence of it all. He's glorious, beautiful, utterly magnificent in all his perfection. He's infinite, eternal and unchanging. All truth, justice, goodness, wisdom, power, love, magnificence is found ultimately in him. And the whole purpose for our existence flows out from who he is. He provides the single, all-embracing, all-transforming reason for being. So Paul, he was able to say later on in Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things I consider the rubbish that I may gain Christ he's saying knowing Christ means more to me than anything else in life so I'm going to use everything else in my life to show others how much he means to me it's like our skills and abilities and gifts can suddenly start to be used for the furthering of Christ's reputation and not merely ours. And our money can suddenly be invested to show that Christ is infinitely more valuable to us than merely us being wealthy. And stuff like houses and lands and cars and computers and gadgets, all of them can be used to show that Christ is far more valuable than what we own. And family and friends and your own life are a place, a platform, a stage on which to show that Christ is far more valuable than any of them. The bottom line is my security and my joy and my self-worth and my contentment in life, they don't come from what I have or don't have, don't come from what others think or don't think. Don't come from my status or lack of status. It's rooted in Christ. It's rooted in Christ. So I want you to see this. We were created to know him, to enjoy him, to be totally satisfied in him. That's what eternal life is all about. That's what we were made for. So that's what's going to give shape and meaning to our present lives. Don't you see, our lives now only makes sense in the light of the life to come. And if the focus of the life to come is Jesus, then it kind of makes sense for Jesus to be our chief focus in this life. And the way we live for Christ in the here and now is by treasuring him above all things and then starting to make life choices that show that our joy isn't finally in other things or even in other people, but solely, squarely, in Christ. For to me, to live is Christ, and therefore to die is gain. Do you get it? Death really is a threat only to the degree that it frustrates your main goals in life. Death is frightening only to the extent that it threatens to rob you of what you value most in life. 
Paul treasured Christ more than anything. Christ was his main goal in life. His mission in life was to know Christ more. And death wasn't going to frustrate that goal. Quite the opposite, in fact. It would actually lead to its fulfilment. And there, I believe, lies the secret of finding joy in death. Life and death. They seem like complete opposites. It's like they're enemies or should be enemies of one another. But for Paul and for all of us who share his hope, there's actually no difference. Either way, it's all about Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die, well, that's gain because it means even more of Christ. I want to draw this to an end by urging you to live a life that enables you to face death with joy. As best I can, I'm just trying to help you to live a life that prepares you to die well. You see, knowing that death isn't the end, knowing that we'll all have to stand before God and all have to give an account for our lives, knowing that our eternity will be shaped by how we view Jesus in this life, knowing that those of us who walked with him in this life will spend eternity with him in new heavens and in new earth, knowing all of this should profoundly affect our daily behaviour. First of all, It should give us a whole new sense of purpose. Later on in Philippians 3 verse 13, Paul says, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. It's like to be heaven-oriented is to be goal-oriented in the very best possible sense. We're not dwelling on the past. We're not merely caught up with the present, with all its demands and pressing concerns. No, we're living for the future, and we're viewing it with a sense of hope and expectation and joy. Secondly, thinking of heaven will help us to live every day in profound thankfulness to God. In the words of Hebrews 12 verse 28, therefore as a result of all of this, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. I don't say this glibly, but however bad this life may get, God has saved us for something better than this. When we gather together to worship him as we've done today, we thank him for what he's done, but we also look forward and in faith we praise him for what's to come. And so the joy of eternity starts to invade our lives now. And thirdly, anticipating what's to come must motivate us to live pure lives in the here and now. In the words of 2 Peter 3 verse 11, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. In keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Let me try and illustrate it like this. I've lost count the number of couples that I've done marriage prep with since planning this church 14 years ago, but I reckon it must be approaching 100 couples. Now, for each of those couples, once they've got the wedding date on their calendar, they're counting down the days, they're constantly thinking of the person they're going to marry. As a result, they're not an easy target for being seduced by someone else. 
And it's the same with heaven. When I'm looking forward to heaven, when I'm thinking of spending eternity with Jesus, suddenly sin isn't all that appealing to me. It's only when my mind starts drifting away from all of this that sin suddenly seems a little more attractive. You see, thinking of heaven inevitably leads to pursuing holiness, to living a life that pleases Jesus, living a life in preparation for spending eternity with him. As 1 John 3 verse 3 puts it, everyone, absolutely everyone who has this hope in them, they purify themselves just as he is pure. Which leads very nicely onto the fourth and final way that all of this really must impact our lives. Namely, it gives us a phenomenal sense of hope. You know what it's like when you do something great, or you experience something wonderful, or maybe you see, you observe something incredible. At those moments, you can find yourself thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. I mean, however hard your life's been, at some point, you will have thought something like that. Maybe it was recently. Maybe it was ages ago. Maybe you can barely remember it. It might take a bit of effort, but I'm sure you can all think of at least one moment in your life when even for a fleeting second, that seemed to be true. It doesn't get any better than this. Well, my message for you today is that it isn't true. Because if you know Jesus, the most ordinary moment in the life to come will be infinitely greater than the most perfect moments in this life. Our sure and certain hope is that it can get better, far better than this, and it will. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If we get this, really get it, then it's a source of phenomenal joy, a joy that nothing can rob us of, not even death.